This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele on 101.9 High FM. My name is Nimrod Mbele. Um, this is the sect of broadcasting from home. Um, it has its ups and downs. Uh, as you all know that we are on a lockdown. Whoever thought that, uh, you know, uh, communication via or communication on radio will be done, you know, from the comfort of our own homes, but that is, it has its own challenges. As you can hear, the background, the dogs are barking for no apparent reason. The kids are yelling at some point. But it is what it is. Uh, the show goes on, um, isn't it? Um, I suppose um, as we get to more serious issues, um, it is important to reflect on what is pertinent at the moment, uh, what it is other than COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, despite the unprecedented challenges which it poses, South Africans are fairly resilient people. And I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic that we shall overcome this tsunami um, as we proceed. If you missed our show last week, which was pretty much on this very issue from a business perspective, uh, simply go to our, web, our website, download it, digest, and give us your inputs in terms of what your thoughts are. Of course, our SMS line is 34519. Our Telegram is 061- Eight nine five one zero nine five, and of course my email address is nimrod at hydrosia.zere. As a norm, I often start the show by a quick reflection in terms of what really stood out for me. For this week, what really stood out for me is the competition commission. We have noted we have noted that more than two hundred and fifty companies, uh, uh, you know, criticisms have been leveled against them in terms of. Um, and competitive business behavior by charging, you know, consumers excessive prices. So this is quite interesting, uh, you know, and of course it does say one thing about our ethics and ethical conduct from a corporate governance point of view, which in my view has been brought to light, which means there's a lot of work that needs to do or that we need to do as a, as, as a community, as the business community and trying to inculcate and strengthen um, ethical conduct because you just cannot uh, use the scourge of corona, COVID-19 to benefit uh, a few at the expense of uh, the majority. Anyway, that's my thought. Uh, the other issue that I thought is quite important for me to reflect on is the, the SAA Express, which is under business rescue. We've seen it coming. Um, and uh, the sooner we wrap up that particular episode, the better. But sadly, the downside of uh, business rescue could potentially uh, end up in massive job losses, which unfortunately is inevitable. When, when you look at where SA Express is, is as well as the uh, uh, South African Airway, uh, Airways, which, is, which has already started its uh, retren- um, retrenchment processes, the other issue that I wanted to reflect on is the the role played by the National Defence Force vis-à-vis the lockdown regulations. And, you know, I've seen some video clips where they've come under fire for allegedly abusing their power uh, by assaulting residents. The question for me is, when communication is out and when people are made aware of the health implications of being exposed to uh, coronavirus, when people do not observe uh, in a social distance, they don't observe health protocols for no apparent reason, what needs to be done? That's, that's the question for me. 
Can we hold uh, soldiers uh, responsible for upholding the law? If we were law-abiding citizens, we would not need this kind of reinforcement, which means there's something that needs to be done differently in as far as educating communities, people around the value of uh, leadership or listening to um, what is potentially catastrophic in an event that we don't listen to. The other issue that I want to reflect on is the rating agencies. Earlier on, I had a chat with the station managers who said to me, you know, you know, Nimrod, if the, you know, Moody's ratings outcomes, um, was a human being, I would have, well, she said she would have labeled that person the most ruthless, uh, cunning and unforgiving human being. And I said, look, guess what? You know, we saw it coming. Um, it was inevitable. It was just a matter of time. But, um, on a serious note, the rating which I will reflect on with my guest um, shortly has a huge financial implication and in economic ramification for the country. Um, as we as we proceed on this very topical issue, um, I think it's important for South Africans to embrace compassion and to embrace empathy. This is not the time and period to blame anyone else. Um, this the scourge of coronavirus is likely to hit uh, the most vulnerable. You're talking of the homeless people, the elderly, the unemployed, and children. Talking of children, let's look at the education sector and the extent to which the COVID-19 is going to have huge uh, implication. In this country, we have about 13 million children who are school going. We have got about 440,000 teachers. Of course, the ratio is a bit, it's, it's a bit odd, but it is what it is. In the same vein, we have almost about 400, 4, 4 million children who depend on, on, on feeding schemes of which the schools are used as sites. The question is, what happens to these 13 million kids? What happens to these 440,000 teachers? What happens to these 4 million children who depend on, on schools as feeding schemes during this pandemic? And most of all, how do we get the learners meaningfully engaged? Like I said earlier on, it is, it's important for us to be empathetic and also offer solutions. The other day I was listening to a media briefing and I was quite perplexed and, and, and slightly annoyed by the level of, by some of the questions posed by journalists. The, the, the indication that I got or the sense that I got was that government is this a body that has depository of knowledge and wisdom which they need, which they've got all the solutions for the problem. You know, if you understand the fact that we are operating in unprecedented, uncharted work, worlds, it is very important that we offer solutions. We can't point fingers uh, in one direction as if we're not accountable. Media houses have the responsibility to provide and offer solutions. Unless you say to me, we have offered this particular solution, it was not adhered to. So there's no point of value or newsworthiness of putting blame on government around housing and a squalor, unemployment. Those are known facts, but the question is, how do you move away from those issues uh, and, and, and avoid those kinds of uh, 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 issues? 
Let's do all with ideology. Let's do all with dogma. Let's just be practical and offer solutions. On that note, as as I move on swiftly, I'm joined online by Bidvest Chairperson and a Chancellor of the University of the Free State, Ndatebona Mahale. Uh, let me take this opportunity to welcome him. Ndatebona Mahale, good evening and welcome. Letebele, thank you so much for having me and good evening to your listeners. Thank you very much, uh, 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 Professor Bonal Mahale. I think it's important that, uh, firstly, before we get into the gist of our conversation, to acknowledge the accolades bestowed on you by the university. You certainly among the thought leaders of this country, and there is no doubt that they've gone through a very rigorous process of appointing you. In my mind and in the minds of majority of South Africans, you are deserving, you have worked very hard, you continue to work very hard and persist uh, in your endeavours. Well, well, well done and once again congratulations on your appointment, Dr. Mahali. I'm absolutely humbled beyond words. It is definitely through the support, the prayers of family and brothers like yourself, I'm absolutely moved um, in the most profound way. Thank you very much, Prof. And I certainly hope and pray that uh, the University of the Free State, under your leadership, will, will, will raise its accolades in the global scale to become one of the best managed and well-governed uh, university that is competitive, that, that is highly competitive, not only in the South African market, but globally. On that note, we'll definitely uh, hold our thumbs for you and wish nothing but the best in that venture. Thank you very much, my dear brother. Let's get to the gist of today's conversation. I saw an article which was, which I thought was very interesting by McKinsey and Company, which suggests that uh, in the context of COVID-19, uh, we suggest that U.S. and Eurozone's economies are likely to recover after three years. Uh, because the coronavirus crisis is ravaging. And, and, and I said to myself, when you juxtapose U.S. and Eurozone economies, where is South Africa? Uh, comparatively speaking, we are defined as developing world. We do not have the same infrastructure, resilience, uh, economic scale, and so on and so forth as compared to, uh, uh, U.S. as well as Eurozone. This obviously is as staggering and it will definitely take a lot of time for South Africa to develop. But, Nadim Hale, from a business point of view, what is it that we need to be doing differently? Because it is common cause that COVID-19 will take a while before we see the lead, we see the positive uh, uh, results economically. So first, you know, to recover from an economic recession, would take on average three to five years. But when we look at the 19 countries that were downgraded below investment grade in 2010, they took on average seven years to recover. Only South Korea did it in three years. They did it in three years because they dropped everything. They rallied the entire populace, everybody's shoulder was to the wheel. They did all the things that were expected of them and they pulled a miracle 
And in three years, they recovered from a downgrade. So it is possible to recover sooner, but you have to work like your whole life depends on it. You started by making an analogy to say, if Moody's was a person, let me start by saying, if South Africa was a person, its one hand was already tied behind its back by years of corruption, state capture, and elevated policy uncertainty that eroded economic growth and business confidence. Its other hand is now also tied behind its back by the coronavirus disease of the 2019 strain, hence the nomenclature COVID-19, when the causal and the causative virus is SARS-2, which is slightly different from the H1N1 flu that ravaged the world starting with Asia a few years ago. The relegation to sub-investment grade now ties the remaining food to totally immobilize us against this pending global recession when you imagine that the one leg is tied up by the technical recession that we are currently in. What with the telltale signs that were already evident for all of us to see, the lower tax revenue of about 1.36 trillion representing about 25 billion shortfall. This was occasioned by many things, but also a, both a decline in company profits and a drop in employee tax because we already seeing lower dividend taxes due to lower GDP growth that clogged at 0.2% this last financial year. But also when you consider that there is a drop from 7,500, now only 6,500 taxpayers who earned more than 5 million per annum and only about 120,000 high-income earners who are taxed at a rate of 45% and these account for about 30% of South Africa's personal income tax. There's also a drop from about 3.2 million, now only 2 million companies that are registered for income tax. Another indicator that is important for me is the bloated public sector wage bill, which moved from 230 billion only in the 2008-2009 financial year to now 585 billion and rising by more than inflation annually. Our budget deficit is now rapidly approaching 6.9%, up from 6.2% of GDP. We have been at the fiscal cliff for some time with both business and consumer confidence at its lowest since the 2008-2009 global financial crisis. But also our fixed investment by the private sector which is the wellspring of economic growth and jobs, has fallen since 2014. The fiscal metrics are compounding downwards and a debt trap now looms. You see Ndate Mbele. Historically, South Africa almost always got bailed out by positive global developments. In at least the last four consecutive medium-term budget policy statements, we have missed our own plans by a mile. Fortunately, we know that the three rating agencies will be looking for four demonstrable actions to review our investment grade. Number one, they are looking for economic strength. Number two, they are looking for fiscal strength. 
Number three, they are looking for institutional strength. And then lastly, they are looking at the country's susceptibility to major event risks. At the moment, we are caught up in a whirlpool of major global events and COVID-19 and Moody's downgrading and global recession and our own technical recession does not help. Over to you, Littabeth. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Mahali. You've indicated a number of very pertinent issues. Um, but what is, what is encouraging based on your assessment is the fact that South Korea um, has done what ordinarily uh, what took what what it took other other countries more than uh, seven years, but it took them for three three years. But I also want to uh, you know agree with you because I've, countries such as Greece, Portugal, uh, I think in Spain, um, you know, managed somehow to recover. But Greece was not as fast as Portugal uh, in terms of economic growth post the recession uh, and post downgrade purely because. They, there was almost a consensus about austerity measures. They needed to address some of the issues that you that that you are highlighted. Firstly, address the public debt, you know, um, and and put the economies in a positive global trajectory. But these are things that are at the face value pretty much clear. But we require a very robust social uh, uh, contract or compact, which, in my view. The corona of the COVID-19, uh, pandemic has somewhat brought us together as communities, to work together. To what extent do you think the, the positive spin-offs of COVID-19 would, 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 would mobilize, um, South Africans, um, you know, stakeholders, big business, be it non-government organization, be it government and labor to speak in one voice uh, and, and, and moving away from the rhetoric that we've seen before the corona, before the COVID-19 and this obsolete ideology, which does not make sense. To what extent do you think we, we are likely to prevail on this trajectory? The Minister of Finance, Minister Tito Mbowene, tells a story that when he went to the president, on Friday evening, before the announcement by Moody's to say we are going to be downgraded. The president responded by saying, this is good news because it will now allow me to implement very deep structural economic reforms. Minister Tito Mboweni says, he then said, this is my hallelujah moment because that's what he's been saying all along. Although not totally unexpected, Friday's Moody's financial services downgrading of South Africa's long-term foreign and local currency debt ratings to BA1 from BAA3 and maintain the negative outlook is an economic earthquake, it's a financial tsunami, and a social catastrophe. The key drivers cited by Moody's are our structurally very weak growth and constrained capacity to stimulate the economy and inexorable rise in government debt over the medium term. This now completes the triumvirate of rating agencies. Finally, all agree that South Africa is not doing enough to balance its own books, to live within its own means and build enough resilience to withstand unforeseen events. The impact will be both immediate and devastating. The timing 
couldn't possibly be worse. So I think South Africans like being on the precipice. Before they fall off the cliff, we pull back and together, all 58.78 million South Africans, we huddle together and put our best foot forward. Now, I think what we need to do is to dig deep into our own resources to say what type of South Africa are we going to leave for our own children. The South Africa of Holisasa Nelson Mandela's dreams, the South Africa that all of us have been praying for. Before I get to what now needs to be done, let me hand over to you, Litebele, to see whether there's any other question. No, no, no. I think I think we're pretty much on the same uh, line, Dadamhan. Uh, Perhaps maybe as as a way forward, because a layman on the street, because sometimes it's important to try, you know, to to send a clear, unambiguous message to a layman in the street that the downgrade all the three top, I mean, uh, all the three rating agencies, which accounts for about uh, 99% of the rating agency regimes, all agree that South Africa is not doing enough from a financial point of view, which means uh, the cost of borrowing are going to be excessively high, which also means South Africa is not going to be in a position to invest on infrastructure or job-creating opportunities because of the high interest rates. Perhaps maybe going to take us through the, the, the ramification of the downgrade in terms of an ordinary folk. Literally, you have hit the nail on the head. So what this means for me is that you are absolutely correct. We'll pay a premium on our current debt, which means that is money that is already in the country. Secondly, this could soon reach a stage where people are just not prepared to extend debt to us. This is money that wouldn't come into the country. And if they do, it will only be at ever higher rates. A lot of fund managers who are not allowed to be in countries or institutions that are sub-investment will have to pull out of South Africa. This may prompt investors to further dump as much as a 100 billion rands of South African assets. This will then lead to further weakness in the rent. South Africa will be removed from the JP Morgan's 59 billion US dollar three indices fund typically run from April to May. Then South Africa will fall out of the world government bond index. The rent will depreciate and thus increasing the price of imported goods. The Reserve Bank might be forced to hike the repo rate, thereby reigniting inflation. The cost of borrowing will rise for both government at the time that government is borrowed to the hilt, almost 62% debt to GDP ratio and ordinary citizens will now have to pay more um, for our goods and services. The cost of things like infrastructure, service delivery, and social grants will be higher for government. We, you and I, will pay more interest on our houses and cars. The price of bread, of milk, electricity, and petrol will also go up. The current anemic economic growth will stall even further. More companies will be forced to close down, leading to more retrenchments and thereby increasing the already stubbornly high levels of unemployment. All of these put together will lead to both low business and consumer confidence, thereby both low domestic 
and foreign direct investments, and by definition, no new jobs that are being created. And we assume that political distress will increase and the social fabric becomes severely stressed. Over to you, sir. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Manu, for that uh, clear uh, explanation in terms of what it means. But what I found very disturbing during the week as I was listening to numerous uh, news bulletin, the Minister of um, Social Development at some point went to, went, went to, went to a point saying uh, the, the department, her department under her leadership is contemplating applying for universal grants across the board, which means already uh, the 16 million or so people who are benefiting from the grants are going to increase um, uh, by, 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 you know, creating, you know, increasing the net, the safety net uh, to cater for the victims of corona uh, virus. On one level, one understand from empathy point of view, but on the other level, talking to an economy that is on a deficit all round, talking to an economy that is barely uh, which has been downgraded. What does it mean in terms of business confidence? When you see or hear a political hierarchy official uh, making such kind of statements that we need to accommodate these people, the question is, where is the money going to come from? Aren't we not exacerbating uh, uh, the situation worse? Aren't we not creating or destabilizing the very um, feeble uh, business or uh, business, um, you know, confidence that exists in the country. What would you say from a business point of view? Because in my mind, a majority of rational beings, as much as we understand that there's a need to increase the safety net, but you can't increase the safety net without creating job opportunities. The job, the role of the government is to create opportunities that enable businesses to thrive. By I'm organizing by doing a structural adjustment, you know, dealing with you know with all the issues that hinder economic investment or investment per se is something that government ought to be doing. Are we not seeing and confusing the public? So, sorry for 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 for, for interrupting you. Uh, finish sure. that thought. I'm saying, I want you know, are we not sending wrong and contradicting messages in this time of, of upheaval? I was going to say that the math already does not add up. 58.78 million South Africans, only about 16 million of us are gainfully employed. 18 million are on social security. Of those that are gainfully employed, 13.5 million are employed by the private sector. All three spheres of government, including the more than 740 state-owned enterprises and state-owned companies, employ about 2.3 million people. Directly, government employs 1.3 million people. And the worry is more than 60% of our expenditure from what we collect as revenue from the South African Revenue Service, on average, which is about 1.4 trillion South African rents, 60% of that goes to social security and paying government employee salaries, which leaves less than 40% to be invested, not in a consumption economy, 
but in a productive economy. That's why government spend in infrastructure has almost collapsed from the highs of 787 billion rands during the 2010 World Cup to almost nothing as we speak, and therefore matched by the private sector who themselves, because of policy uncertainty and lack of regulatory policy stability, have also decided, you know what, we don't know what tomorrow holds, rather I hold slightly more cash than I would ordinarily do. Therefore, under these circumstances, when the structure of our economy, instead of being diamond-shaped with a few on top that are top earners and a few at the bottom that are indigent and a huge bulging middle class that is supporting those that can't, the South African economy is more than a, it, it looks more like a triangle where the base is a huge um, a contingency of people that are in the bottom class. And your and my struggle is how do we take the bottom half from this bottomless pit into the middle class so that they also have something to, to lose. So for me, instead of increasing the burden onto the state, we need to answer what the communists of yesteryear were raising as to so what needs to be done. I think we must urgently embark on much needed and long overdue massive, profound structural economic reforms and thereby sent by our deeds, not just by our words, signals that South Africa is on a plausible path towards dealing with its most fearsome challenges. We must drastically reduce the bloated public sector wage bill and thereby change the current dismal narrative about South Africa and annul fears that a Moody's downgrade is indeed a death sentence. We are much more resilient than, than that. We must charge the top state capture mis miscreants. For 10 years, Richard Quest tells us we've been talking about state capture. We are yet to send one person in jail. We must deal decisively with the 450 billion ESCOM debt and the 120 billion cumulative bailouts because today as we speak, the single biggest both systemic and systematic risk is this ESCOM debt and its inability to keep the lights on which we know energy is the fourth means of production if we are going to be a productive rather than a consumptive uh, economy. The focus must be on an inclusive social economic growth and transformation because you can't just focus on growth and forget that this economy must broadly be reflective of the demographics. Today, poverty still has by and large both a black and a feminine face. We must genuinely believe that the country warrants a lower risk premium. We might want to consider tax credits for companies that invest in large-scale job creation, especially for the youth, with monies that we can save every year from irregular, fruitless, and wasteful expenditure. We might want to redirect and increase government investment in social and economic infrastructure like water, because water is the next looming catastrophe, Elizabeth and sewer projects, and in housing, and in public buildings, and a safe, accessible, and affordable public transport.
Because today, if you give your own employees laptops and smartphones to take home to exercise the three mandatory things during COVID-19, which is one, social distancing, number two, um, washing their hands for 20 seconds, and then number three, self-quarantine at home, you, you, it, this is the shortest way to ensure that these laptops and these smartphones are going to be confiscated in our taxes on their way to Soweto and indeed uh, Alexander. So sewer projects must be uh, uh, absolutely uh, prioritized, road and bridge maintenance. That has a high employment impact. We have to focus on land reform, not, not just expropriation without compensation and agricultural support programs directed at supporting young people to find work opportunities as well as scaling up the expanded public works program. I'm back to you, Little Thank you very much for that insight, uh, uh, Professor Mahane. Uh, I think it, it certainly makes a huge sense. But here's a, you know, the, the, the elephant in the room. You, you've made mention of critical drivers that could see the country turning around. That is the ESCOM public debt. And let's just look at the entire SOE because if government has to make a dent in its debt, and as part of the uh, uh, reconfiguration and transformation, we need to seriously look at the state-owned enterprises and and do away with those that are not strategic to the well-being of the economy. But here's here's the, uh, the million-dollar question: the extent to which I mean, I was quite happy when you said when the the minister of finance uh, when when he was approaching the president on the eve of the downgrade. Um, he was like, now he has an opportunity to, 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 I mean, to grow teeth or to have more claws because, you know, the whole conversation is going to be impersonal in a way that look what has happened. We now need to, we have been, you know, we have been too soft around structural reforms. We've been too soft on deep issues around, for example, SOEs. Do you think, um, the kind of consensus uh, or do we have a consensus around firstly dealing with SOEs of 250 or so SOEs that are not necessarily adding value, at least from the production side of things? Uh, we understand that SOEs by their nature are there to support uh, programs that private sector ordinarily would not either invest in or do not have appetite in. But um, but in the long term, they are not really adding uh, value, you know. So which means there's a need to look at one pocket of economic muscle, which is the SOEs. Uh, is the, the, I want to I hear the voice of business in driving the in the discourse in restructuring SOEs as a pinnacle um, that could see the country, uh, you know, in being emancipated sooner than later. You raise very profound uh, thoughts um, on those two. But we are lucky because all of South Africa's problems and all solutions are both well understood and well articulated in a myriad of plans, especially in the NDP 2030. So we have more than 740 SOEs and state-owned companies. Imagine if we ran them for the best interest of South Africa Incorporated. When Kenya Airlines is looking for a CEO for their own airways, they could be looking south and saying, 
this eight-year-old award-winning African airline that has given the majority of pilots to Emirates and to Qatar, surely we should headhunt a CEO from there. It was Professor Imran Valodia's 30th of January 2020 article that made three uncontroversial assertions that many of our economic problems will ease if the economy starts to grow. Secondly, he said that a capable state is vital for any economy to grow in the modern capitalist system. And then lastly, he said we need efficient and effective enterprises. We must urgently embark on a few but sustained actions if we are going to succeed in convincing at least one of the three rating agencies that will emerge out of this recession in the shortest period of time by ruthless execution of what needs to be done. Additional tax revenues are urgently needed. We must reduce future transfers to these SOEs that in the past were systematically slammed with hurriedly promoted usually untested, largely incompetent and often corrupt cadred deployment where performance was not even expected. Had we sold South African Airways to Emirates at that time that was prepared to pay real money for it, I think we'd be better off as a company, as a country. It was the former president that says, but if we sell a stake, we won't be able to steal as much as we are stealing. Therefore, that deal was thwarted and it was aborted, still born. The disposal of non-core assets is imperative, which might free up up to $7 billion in just one year because the government does not have the money. Options for private sector participation or PPPs is our only salvation in this current crisis. But in doing that, business must also have a new consciousness and a new singularity of purpose and intentionality because business no longer really has a choice about declaring the values that they hold dear, that they adhere to, and about making a vocal stand about these. It is now expected of them Today, society believes that business now bears equal responsibility with government to drive positive social change. This illustrates a fast-shifting mood towards social justice in a society's mindset. We have now entered the age where the weapon of mass destruction is social media that has hugely empowered ordinary people to hold business accountable. As companies have grown in size and power, ordinary people, are increasingly expecting more from them to drive this positive change and to work towards the greater good rather than acting solely on the basis of business's own agenda. This is an uncomfortable space for business to enter. Only making money was up until now the main pursuit of what I called old business. But finding purpose is pivotal to the new business. Business must make the shift from a sales-based to a values-based way of thinking and doing. Business now has to answer to a very different type of stakeholder. In this era, fan-sitting is no longer an option for business. Being ethical, and visibly so, is mandatory. Mbele, over to you, sir.
Thank you very much. I like your last point at Denimhane about the role of business um, in driving and actually leading the recovery plan on a basis of sound ethics and, and consciousness in terms of what is the purpose of business. And business can no longer be a, a, a bystander in, in, in the space of economic development. It cannot be that everything is left unto politicians for we would not have been in this kind of political and economic quagmire had business took its rightful position. But I'm glad that uh, there's a, an emerging sense of purpose and reconfiguration among business so that, you know, these issues around ethics and consciousness um, are, are, put, are put at the premium. Let me make an example. Um, you know, I've picked up you know, that there's about 250, uh, you know, companies uh, that are found wanting by the Competition Commission in, resp- in as far as uh, uh, anti-competitive behaviors on, on COVID-19 incidents. So that, for me, it says, um, you know, consciousness among business leadership, ethics amongst business leadership. And this oneness that you're talking about still needs to be driven down because um, there's not really much confidence when you see high statistics such as such as those. And perhaps maybe it's a, it's a topic it's a topic for another uh, a, a day. But but if you may just reflect on the role because in redefining business, uh, in defining business from a conscious point of view. And from a leadership point of view, it is important that it is anchored by ethics and ethical conduct, which are unfortunately being undermined by, by, by this incident that we see. Your take on that? I couldn't possibly agree with you more because you have hit the nail on the head. We have to reimagine business in the 21st century. Accounting 101 used to teach us, mostly from Ivy League American universities, that the role of business is shareholder maximization. This cannot still be the case in the 21st century. Let me submit that the purpose of business, first and foremost, is to survive. Because if businesses can survive COVID-19, the technical recession that we are in, and the Moody's downgrade, and the state capture that we've seen in the last nine wasted years. We can make money until it comes out of our ears. The second purpose of business is to ensure that we bring upon this notion of shared value. One of the key challenges facing both today is to ensure that corporate decision making is consistent not only with the whims of the shareholders, but it takes into consideration a broader stakeholder community the society where you are based, the community where you are located, labor as an integral and important partner in taking these businesses forward. Had we done that, Marikana would not have happened because those executives of Lon Min would have driven through this informal settlement and said, but our colleagues live here. Surely we must galvanize the force, the impetus, the resources of the company to make sure that our own colleagues live in proper bricks and mortar with a proper roof over their heads. The third role of business is to ensure that we do no harm. Our employees have a right to expect to come to work whole 
and complete and go back to their significant others with ten fingers on both of their hands because we have not harmed them. That is the job of business. But doing no harm sounds a bit passive. The fourth role of business is to ensure that business uses its newly found voice, its newly found resources to make the world a better place because we have not so much as inherited this earth from our forebears as we borrowed it from our children. Therefore, it behooves us to live it in a state that is substantially better than we found it in. Lastly, it is the role of business to ensure that we develop close, personal, intimate relationships with our own societies and we grow our own team. It can't just be the job of government to give us the skills that we need in the fourth industrial revolution era. We must plant our own timber as it were. We must produce our own coders and we must be able to bring up the people that are averse in artificial intelligence, in cryptocurrencies, in the internet of things. We know that moving forward, when all of us work hand in hand, hand in glove with all the social partners, all our most fearsome of challenges can be adequately addressed because all of us will be putting our shoulders to the wheel, will not be looking at self-interest, but will be putting what's in the best of South Africa first and foremost. Letebel, I'm back to you. Thank you, Dr. Mahal. On that note, shall we take a, a quick break and we'll get back in just a second as we are about to wrap up a very interesting conversation with Professor Bono Mahali, who, who is the uh, chairperson of Vit, uh, uh, Bitvest as well as the chancellor of the University of the Free, uh, Free State. If you, I, I implore to you to weigh in our conversation. Our SMS line is 34519. Of course, our telegram is 061. 895-1095 and of course my email address is nimrod at high dosages. Let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Dembele on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back uh, we, uh, to Beyond Governance. This is Nimrod Dembele. Uh, uh, we've had a very interesting conversation with the uh, Chancellor of the University of the Free State and the chairperson of the Bitvest group, Ndate Bonang Mahale, uh, give us a very interesting thoughts process around how, how business is responding to the pandemic of coronavirus. And before we went to the break, he was really giving us uh, a, a very interesting view around how business needs to refocus and develop a sev- some deep level of consciousness uh, in terms of creating shared value. Uh, gone are those days, so he says, where business is, was driven by bottom line. So there's a need for business to embrace a triple bottom line, which means the stakeholders in all incentives needs to be brought in as part of, 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 of business developing strategy moving forward. Dadem Hali, thank you very much for giving us that, that, that heads up. As we're about to wrap up, Another issue that we, 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 we were dealing with in the main was how business is responding or ought to respond to COVID-19. I think the question should also be beyond the COVID-19. I think you've made a very interesting observation by drawing comparison to countries that were downgraded among others. But South Korea, to, to your words, um, was able to to, to transform within a very short space of time, which means there are lessons that can be learned from South Korea. We can learn from Portugal, we can learn from Greece, we can learn, we can learn from Brazil, 
these are countries that have been in the same level where we are. But unfortunately, the, the, the level of depth was not as grave because coronavirus just added a different dimension, which makes it very difficult for any country. If it's going to take, on average, three years for developed countries to emerge out of the uh, uh, corona, uh, coronavirus pandemic, with, the, with South Africa in the main, we're more likely to have more than three months, uh, three years, so to speak, which means it requires a deep, critical, uh, you know, Interrogation and commitment across the board. Government has to commit. Private sector has to commit. Labor has to commit. We need to get to a point where the, this, uh, you know, social contract, construct, which in my view has been somehow brought to, to somehow was heightened by COVID-19. We need to leverage on it. We need to pull our resources, shoulders on wheel across the board. That's something that I think could take this country forward. In your party short in Tatemhali, what would you say to a business, a government, and all the stakeholders in moving forward? Literally, we know that reduced public spending leads to enhanced government creditworthiness, which then leads to falling bond yields, and which in turn leads to falling interest rates for all borrowers, which ultimately leads to increased private sector investment. Because government currently has no money, our only salvation is business. Thank you for having me, my dear brother. Thank you very much. Uh, that was uh, Professor Bonang Mahale, the, the Chancellor of the University of the Free State, giving us a very interesting, thought-provoking Practical, sensible uh, suggestions, uh, which could, uh, you know, really drive the economy or back to its uh, trajectory or back to what NDP has pointed out to at some point. We ought to have been growing at what five percent? We are barely growing at three, like zero point zero one percent. The coronavirus has just made things worse. But I sincerely hope that. Um, the kind of uh, inputs that you provided at Mahale has been heated. Once again, it has been a pleasure having you on board, and, and uh, we wish you all the best in your future. Kialibu. That is, uh, that was Dr. Uh, Mahale, Professor uh, and the Chancellor uh, at, at the University of the Free State and the chairperson of Bitfest Group, giving us a very interesting, uh, thought-provoking, insightful uh, uh, guidance in, in as far as how to emancipate ourselves. Once again, it has been a pleasure to have you on board. Um, you know, uh, Let's look forward to our next week. Thank you very much. Have a good one.